Welcome to The Indigenous Approach, a podcast where we examine the role of the nation's premier partnership force across the competition continuum, from cooperation to conflict and everything in between. In this episode, Colonel Brian O'Leary sits down with author Sebastian Younger, Master Sergeant Chris Copper, and Colonel Dan Kearney to discuss the effects of transitioning from the war in Afghanistan. Today we're going to be talking about some of the implications that the pullout from Afghanistan is having on our force. This is Colonel Brian O'Leary. I'm the command psychologist. With me I have Colonel Dan Kearney, Master Sergeant Chris Copper, and author and someone that spent almost as much time as all of us down there, Sebastian Younger. So if I could get each of you to introduce yourselves and tell them a little bit about well, hey, uh, my name is Master Sergeant Chris Copper. I work here at First Special Forces Command as the Human Performance and Wellness Senior Enlisted Advisor. I've been in the Army 18-plus years and served most of it in the special operations between Ranger Regiment and SF. Uh, definitely had experience between Afghanistan, Iraq, and uh, as we draw down and as I'm drawing down in my own career you know, and getting older, and seeing myself in the mirror, there's definitely a lot, I think, that goes uh, the, the conversation with what uh, the topic at hand is with uh, Sebastian's books and across the force with um, the GWAT generation. Yeah, my name is uh, Dan Kearney. I'm serving right now with 18th Airborne Corps here at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And um, much like the rest of the team here, have, have deployed over to Afghanistan numerous times. Uh, both in a, a special operations capacity with 75th Ranger Regiment as well as with the General Purpose Force. And uh, was was lucky enough to spend 15 months over there with Brian and uh, and Mr. Younger. I'm Sebastian Younger. I'm an author and journalist. And um, I met Dan and a bunch of other wonderful, amazing soldiers and men in the Korangal Valley in 2007, 2008. I can't believe it's been that long. And uh, I'm no longer a war reporter um, I, I'm a I'm a father of two little girls, and I'm staying home these days. But um, I'm thrilled that some of the work that I've done might be helpful to you guys. So uh, thank you for having me into the conversation. So Sebastian, can you kind of you've spent a great deal of time over a long period of time in Afghanistan? Can you kind of just walk us through your time there? Yeah, sure. So I I first went there in 1996. Uh, in summer of '96, the Taliban were about to take over. Um, I had the honor of being shot at by a Taliban gunner right at the outskirts of Kabul, back when Kabul was a pile of rubble. And I remember the the guy I was with, the Afghan, he was Pashtun, and he, and he, and he said, you know, we hate those people, but we're going to let them in because they'll clean up corruption. Um, and it was really interesting now looking back, you know, with, you know, the president, President Ghani leaving with allegedly almost $200 million in cash, like, I remembered those words. I was like, if there's one thing, maybe America didn't take take care of it was that core issue. Um, but I just fell in love with Afghanistan as a country, the people, everything. And, and I went back in 2000. I was with Ahmed Shah Massoud. I was horrified by the Taliban. I was with Ahmed Shah Massoud in 2000 and his forces in, in Barakshan as they fought the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. They're centered around the town of Talakan when the fighting was happening back then. And, and uh, I was in a lot of heavy stuff with those guys and then Masood was assassinated two days before 9-11, and I rushed back there as soon as I could, and I was with his commanders that I'd known in 2000 uh, as they rolled forward across the Shomali Plain, backed by, you know, U.S. Air Force, and uh, and took Kabul. I was working for ABC News as a correspondent then, and, um, you know, I remember the just incredible joy of the Afghan populace in Kabul, 
you know, I would get hugged on the street by people when they found out I was American. They were so grateful for what this country had done for them. And then I, you know, then the next time was, you know, the war dragged on. It seemed impossible. It seemed like an easy win at first, but it dragged on. And I was um, in Zabul province in late fall 2005. And that was my first experience with Americans, embedded with American soldiers. I mean, I just couldn't believe what those guys were doing. They were working so hard. They were such amazing soldiers. I knew nothing about the U.S. military. I'd covered lots of wars, but I'd never, you know, never with the U.S. military. And, and uh, I was really blown away by those guys. And, and, uh, and so I was like, man, if, if this unit, it was Battle Company. If this unit goes back to Afghanistan, I, I refused to cover Iraq. I thought it was a mistake. But Afghanistan, I was like, if they go back there, I want to document them for a, a, a deployment as much as I can get over there. And indeed, at the last moment, I think almost they, they got routed to uh, from Iraq to the Korangal Valley, which I'd never heard of. And uh, and then the fun began. So um, that, you know, that year that I spent off and on with them was really one of the most meaningful experiences, uh, certainly of my career and really of my life. I think that and, and having a family, I, weirdly, are sort of probably the two most meaningful things I've experienced in my life. It was absolutely extraordinary. And it was partly because of, of Dan and the quality of his men. It was an extraordinary experience for a civilian, a middle-aged civilian to have uh, with, with that unit. So I had the opportunity of uh, hearing your two books here recently because of this upcoming podcast, I went ahead and did what pretty much most of my peers would do. And I downloaded them on audible and I listened to them in the gym and I thoroughly enjoyed both of them. Uh, you know, talking tribe that resonated because I've, I've, as I've been working here at first SFC and within the HPW and even looking back over my own career, I'm wondering why, you know, we're struggling with, returning back to, you know, back to America after going to, uh, you know, said country, whether it's Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, regardless of what one's feelings towards the country is versus the other, it's, you know, quite different compared to each other. And we get back here and some of America's greatest humans are having the hardest time transitioning. And so, you know, and I was listening to Tribe, that was starting to open that box. And I'd like to, you know, get a little bit more dialogue from you on that, sir. Yeah, thank you. Well, I mean, you have to, you have to remember, we have to keep in mind that humans are social primates and uh, are foremost, you know, there's a hierarchy of needs. I can't remember what the top one is, but um, shelter, you know, with shelter, safety, food, you know, whatever it is, I can't even remember. But I really think that hierarchy is wrong. I think I mean, ask anyone who spent a week in solitary confinement, like, what would they rather skip, you know, skip a meal or rejoin, rejoin society in the main, you know, in the main halls of the prison, you know, like social isolation is, I think, the one of the most crippling things uh, that we can endure. And ironically, as America has become a wealthy country, we are affluent enough to maintain in some ways, an unnatural human distance from other people. I mean, every child has their own bedroom and every family has their own home that's walled off from other families. Communities are not connected because they don't need each other. You know, as an African village, those people are close. Not that there aren't stresses that come with that closeness, but those people are close because they need each other. I grew up in a wealthy suburb. Nobody needed anybody, right? And so there's a, there's a liberation there, but there's also a real loss. And that social connection 
reawakens instantaneously in a crisis, in a hurricane, the blitz in London, a blackout in New York, whatever. There are some antisocial behaviors that come up, but for the most part, almost everyone's reaction is pro-social. And they will often remember those terrible days, as I do in the Korrigal, as the best days of their lives, the most meaningful days of their lives. So what happens is you have soldiers who are trained to work in a unit that sort of like pro-social behavior is ingrained in them. The circumstances further reinforce it. And okay, it may be, you know, hell out there or whatever, but it's social heaven, right? I mean, and maybe in physical terms, it's hell. But socially speaking, as the social animals that we are, you're sleeping within arm's reach of three other guys. And everyone's depending on each other for their lives and their safety. That is our human evolution. And it resonates very, very deeply with people that are exposed to it. And then they're not going back to small organic communities the way humans evolved to live in for hundreds of thousands of years. They're going back to wealthy America, right? And um, all you have to do is look at the levels of mental illness and mental distress in this country to know that they're coming back to a society which is extraordinary on many, many levels, right? I mean, I don't even have to list this society's accomplishments, right? Um, but in terms of psychological health, it gets very, very poor ratings. Uh, we have some of the highest rates ever of addiction, of depression, of suicide. I mean, ironically, suicide and depression go up with affluence in a society. They don't go down, they go up. And that tells you a lot about the buffering effects of sociability on mental disorders and, and trials. Well, it definitely makes sense. You know, just going back and thinking on what you're saying, my wife has since asked, you know, about deployments and the easiest way to ex describe to her is just simple living. It's simple living. You know, you, you, you are worried about your living conditions, your chow, uh, and you get to go out and do combat operations. That's simple. And if it's not important, you don't do it. Exactly. You know, everything back here is pretty much taken care of. Even if you're single, you've probably set something up for your bills to be taken care of, you know, because you're first, second line supervisor. So life's easy. Don't get killed. How good's the food? How good's the sleep? And you're with your bros and your people. And life's simple. The thing that scares me, though, listening to you, Sebastian, is uh, I'm probably a product of this. And there's probably a number of other veterans out there like me. But I was much more outgoing. I wanted to be the life of the party. I wanted to be amongst more people. And after 13 combat deployments, I no longer want that. Um, I find, you know, comfort in being at the top of a mountain in Montana where there is nobody else. Um, but to hear you say those things, it almost like makes me reflect and be like, maybe I've got this wrong. And Why? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of throwing that out there for the team. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll just, first of all, every war that I could find written records about, there was testimony by soldiers of missing the war, right? The Civil War, the First World War, I mean, complete bloodbaths, right? Like, who in their right mind? There was an amazing documentary about the First World War where they colorized some footage that they found, an amazing trove of a treasure of, of uh, film footage from the First World War photographs, and they colorized it, 
And in every single photograph where the men weren't in combat, they were laughing and smiling, right? This is the first, this is in the trenches of World War I, right? So clearly there's something going on out there which is um, very human and very healthy and very needed. And I mean, I just read an article, I mean, this blew my mind. You know, I thought, okay, missing combat, maybe it's sort of a macho American thing. We got all the toys, we got all the guns, you know, maybe it's just a good time out there and the guys miss it. Of course, like, I get it. I just read that the Taliban fighters, now that the war's over, they're bored. Like, they miss the war. They literally have told journalists that they miss, they miss the fighting, they miss the war. The Taliban, right? I mean, maybe you guys could have a reunion every 10 years or something. <laughs> you know, get it, get it out of your systems. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> It's crazy. So, so we just have to. We just have knock on wood, Sebastian. Don't do that to us. <laughs> we just have to assume that there's that that soldiers miss something healthy about combat, in addition to the harmful effects of combat. And those are two separate conversations, right? And you know, I think there's a fair amount of self-medicating. Yeah, no, that, definitely. That goes with the harmful effects. People drink. They they take up ultra marathoning. They like. You know, spending time by themselves in the mountains of of, uh, of Montana. Um, uh, if I if I'm getting my biblical history correct, uh, Saint Francis of Assisi, who was famous for his communion with animals, was out in the wilderness because he was a combat vet and he had trauma. Right. So, I mean, Dan, you could look that up. But if you know, if I'm remembering correctly, you are. You know, you're in good company with that. I, I was looking at a, a, a research paper from a, a very warlike tribe in East Africa. Um, and they do these raids, right, on, on neighboring cattle herding uh, communities. And they might run 50 or 100 miles during these raids with an AK-47, right? Very like the ultimate light infantry. And it's, um, uh, it's super, super dangerous. And what they found was that all of the warriors that came back had a startle response and some of the more superficial uh, symptoms of PTSD, but only the only the warriors who were who were not well socially integrated into the community had depression. Only the alienated, poorly socialized soldiers uh, wound up with long-term emotional disturbances from the combat, and the people that were well connected socially in their community got over the sort of depressive part of it extremely quickly. And so what I would say is that in American society, particularly the sort of more affluent uh, levels of it, um, there, uh, which I, and by that I mean lower middle class and up, um, I think it's not that people are poorly socialized, it's that there's just not that much to plug into. And so people, they retreat into their own space. One of the things that I, you know, what I see and kind of going into the tribes is I've grown up in the military. Uh, it's, it's largely one of the only tribes that I know. I feel comfortable when I come back home, uh, vice probably some of my other peers and, and friends that are in the military, because many of them come back and then they get out of the army and they go back to their homes where they are not surrounded by the same people with the same type of social norms. Uh, or understanding of of what this process is like, uh, so I, I think it's a little bit, you know, easier for me to go ahead and and come back and and come back into society because I'm still in the military. Number one and number two, all the people that I know outside are largely military folks as well and military veterans because that's all that that's my family. And then, you know, the, the second 
family that I have is is largely the one that I went to school with, which was largely people that were in a military school. So again, very like-minded to the military. They've ingratiated themselves to the same type of like social norms and values as myself and uh, those that I grew up in in the military. So I think I have an easier time. It's to your point, Sebastian, when you when you come back from this um, environment overseas, whatever it is, everybody's got a differing one, whether you were in the Korngal or you sat on you know, the airfield in Bagram, you still had this, this forged, you know, friendship tribe uh, that was kind of forged together in the blast furnace of combat that you're not going to necessarily find when you come back to society. And it's hard to plug in and hard to find those folks that are the same, you know, like-minded and have similar experiences. Thank you, Dan. I mean, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of studies on how people who go through things together, particularly hard things, uh, are closer and they trust each other more. And it makes sense. I mean, if you think about sort of human evolution and humans living typically in groups of 50 people or so, I mean, what's that? Like a platoon, right? Um, And they go through, you know, similar things together or identical things together. They're all traumatized together, right? Like, I mean, uh, uh, a danger is usually a group experience for humans. And recovery from, from trauma is a group experience because everyone's going through everything together, right? And even maybe the warriors are fighting. But there are immediate consequences for everyone else in the community. You know, I'm picturing a hunter-gatherer community. Um, there are immediate consequences for everybody else. So they're all involved. They're all invested, right? And um, so there's a lot of data that people that go through all of that together are closer, and they mistrust, reasonably so. They mistrust people who haven't gone through the same stuff. It totally makes sense, right? And even in a modern society that's directly threatened. I mean, I remember in my book, Tribe, I'm just a... You know, I wrote that a while ago, but I'm just fishing a quote out here. There was some woman who said, you know, we were waiting for the Germans, uh, you know, in London, and we would have fought them, you know, we the civilians would have fought them with broken bottles if we'd had to, right? So I think of the cohesion, even within an urban, large urban metropolis, the cohesion, the sense of shared purpose, the shared experience of people during, you know, wartime London. And, you know, the victory of America in some ways is that we are so powerful and so wealthy that our population, for the most part, does not go through group hardships, right? I mean, maybe sort of regionally when there's a hurricane and then there's a lot of cohesion for a while. But, you know, as a nation, we're not going, you know, the last time the nation went through a sort of group hardship was, you know, maybe the rationing that happened during World War II or something, right? That's a victory, right? But victories sometimes have downsides. Um, And the downside is that we do not feel like a nation because we do not... um, we don't require or even ask for individual contribution from the populace, right? I mean, you pay your taxes, you're good, right? You don't have to do anything else. And the pity of that is that the more you contribute to your community, the more you value it. You know, I think one of the problems with this horribly sort of partisan political you know, system that we have right now, that really, really pretty hateful uh, rhetoric at, at some times in our in our uh, in our political lives, our social lives, you know, is because, you know, ultimately when we're, no one's contributing to the common good. So we don't we're not invested in it. And it's very, very easy to see enemies in our fellow Americans because they don't have the identical experiences we're having. And all of that, that partisan rhetoric, I, I'm telling you, it is unsettling to people. And when people come back from combat environment, where they say they feel very securely nested within a within their group, right? 
And then suddenly their group is America and America's fighting with itself. Honestly, that's hard. That's hard on mental health, right? That is tough on a, a, a veteran who's a soldier that's struggling to try to keep his act together or her act together and convince himself that he or she has come back to something coherent and worth worth having fought for. And when you hear the politicians and you hear some of the media leaders talking about their fellow Americans, I'm telling you, that is that is bad for the mental health of soldiers. I mean, I can't I can't put it more directly than that. You know, Sebastian, I would I'll concur 100 percent because, as you know, we've been talking here. I've made a few notes and you, know, you talked about the last time our country had an event where we came together. You know, I would throw 9-11 out there. It might have been a brief, short time, but that was my generation. I was 21 years old. I can remember where I was at. Um, and, you know, I was living in Hawaii. I was actually arguing with my roommate at the time from Brazil on which country was better while planes were literally flying into the World Trade Center as we were stumbling back from the bar. And, you know, flash forward 20 years later, I'm sitting here talking to you, uh, Colonel Kearney, Colonel Leary, about this as a Green Beret. And my generation has been forged off of that moment because I was a long-haired surfer that had no interest in being in the military. And, you know, so now 20 years later, after eight combat rotations, coming home to some of the things that you see, knowing I'm a soldier, but I'm also a citizen. I pay taxes. I have a family. My kids are engaged in the community. My wife, you know, I'm very much, this is my country. It does do a lot to the mind because of my experiences, where I've been, what I'm about, and uh, what I hold near and dear. It starts messing with it. You know, it definitely uh, eats up a lot of Colonel O'Leary's time. <laughs> um you know, because it's not healthy and it's not healthy for the force. And I think that's what we're seeing across the board with our behavior health that ties into the stuff that you're writing about a few years ago with tribe before this was even really starting to gain, you know, headway. And then just circling back to something you had said about the guys in the Korngal and you're seeing guys being in combat laughing. I think it goes to combat expectation management. You know, when I was a brand new private, you know, uh, I went to Afghanistan. We pretty much cool trip living in patrol bases on the eastern border and trying not to get scuffed up by our team leaders. But, you know, at first it was so, man, we're in combat. When's the combat start? And then I realized at a young age that combat, you know, was defined by long periods of boredom with short periods of intensity because it's not always just slinging lead and getting after it. And you find yourself just into your truest nature. And so flash forward a few years later uh, in SF when we were living in the villages doing the village stability operations. You know, I had a ranger buddy of mine that had grown up with it, 275, that was now with me in uh, in uh, SF. And we got briefed the mission of VSO. And we both looked at each other and thought that was the craziest thing ever, that we were going to live in the village. But it was the coolest thing ever because what you realize is, is to us, that was this combat zone to these Afghans. That was their life. That was that was their piece of the world that they were carved out. And there was mothers and fathers and brothers and games and events and stores and, you know, a, a way of life. And to us, it was this combat zone far, far away. And it really mixed the two worlds to then jump back to what I was saying now to have that experience, to see what's going on in our own country, it starts to really shake that up like a Coke can. One of the things I hear Sebastian and Chris saying 
you know, Master Sergeant Copper, is really talk with your brothers and sisters that have been there and shared that common experience. Because for a lot, you know, less than one half of a percent of our current population have served in the longest war ever. They just kept sending the same people back again and again and again. You know, I, I was there with, in 173rd when you were there in 2005, and I was pleasantly surprised to see you come back in 2007, Sebastian. I remember that. I mean, and that that deployment does create a common bond. Um, so, I mean, getting out and legitimately checking on your brothers and sisters and talking to them, and it's not psychopathology or having this feeling a lot of people are have about Afghanistan. That's anger. And there's some pretty legitimate reasons to be angry if you've been at war that long. And you see, you know, when, when it's done, you know, the world, you know, 19 years of war, I'm seeing it catching up with people across the force, including a lot of veterans that are out now. And so I think, and it doesn't need a shrink per se, you know, talking with your brothers that you ate dirt with and were shoulder to shoulder to, that's going to be more therapeutic than sitting against some doc that you've never eaten dirt with. I, I think, um, you know, there's something enormously comforting and reassuring for anybody to talk to the people they're closest to. And one of the ironies of combat is you can feel closer or at least as close to you know, guys you're not related to uh, and just met, you know, a year ago or whatever, then then to your own family. I mean, that's one of the confusing things, right? It's like, why do I feel closer to these guys than, you know, to the, my own my to my own family? Like it, it uh, I think it's very confusing. So let's just let's just say it's incredibly comforting and important to talk to those people that understand your experiences. But you have to be careful and you have to you have to leverage that for your sense of emotional safety and mental health. But you have to be careful that you don't talk to them so much that you're actually keeping yourself from resuming a healthy civilian and civic life and family life. Right. The point is to reintegrate. So you you want to access those bonds of brotherhood from combat when you're having a bad day or a bad month in this country, but you don't want to completely rely on that because you will be you will be sort of like isolating yourself with that group and it will make it harder to, to reintegrate, which is the point of all this. And so I, I, I saw one paper, um, research paper, they found that the uh, mental health outcomes for a, a, a study group of soldiers, of veterans, who focused on other veterans for support the mental health health outcomes were actually not as good as veterans who focused on other veterans plus civil society, plus their families and communities and whatever public engagement they chose. Like that, that was actually the optimum outcome. And if you really just sort of relegate yourself, sort of ghettoize yourself to other people who have deployed, you'll get an immediate sort of reassuring feeling. But in the long term, it's not a good strategy for reintegration. And reintegration, ultimately, even in a society as as sort of like um, dislocated and unconnected as ours, reintegration ultimately is the point. And I would just sort of finish that thought by saying a huge step in reintegrating into society is feeling that you have successfully communicated the nature of your experience, the consequences of your experience to those people. And I hear a lot of soldiers that say, oh, you'd never understand. I'm not even going to talk about my experience. You'll never understand. Well, that is setting up a paradigm where it's a self-fulfilling paradigm. Of course, they're not going to understand if you don't talk about it. How could they? They didn't go over there. So what, you know, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not clairvoyant. So 
um, I, I set up a, a, um, an initiative called Veterans Town Hall. So uh, VTH, Veterans Town Hall, you can look it up. It's on my website. There's a page. It's very, very simple. It's modeled after Native American ceremonies that reintegrated warriors into an organic sort of tribal community. I just took that to the next level with American society. And basically, town halls are the center of every community in the country. No matter you, where you're from, there's a town hall in your area. And uh, so basically, it's a chance every Veterans Day for, for veterans of any war who served in any capacity. You know, we shouldn't be sort of snobbish about the non-combat MOSs or, you know, whatever, like nurses, everybody. You know, it doesn't matter. You served over there. You have the right to talk to your community for 10 minutes about what it feels like, what it felt like. Right. And so we did this. We had World War II vets. We had we had Vietnam vets. We had guys that were super proud of their service. Right. And we had guys and women as well who were like angry as hell that they fought Vietnam. And how could the how could you make us do that? I mean, there was everything right. There was grief. There was everything. And so what it allows, it allows the catharsis of public expression. Right. Um, and it allows the community to say, I've, I've heard you. I have a better understanding. Now the uh, consequences of war, all the good consequences and the b- bad consequences, the moral burden of war, all that stuff, we collectively own it. I didn't pull the trigger on the rifle, right? But my taxes paid for that rifle. My government chose that war. Like, we're all in this. And Veterans Town Hall actually allows, it's a very, very uh, powerful experience for people. Uh, both the civilians who are listening and the and the veterans who are speaking, and I honestly I would recommend that as the beginning of a bridge to um, reintegrating into one's community. That's powerful. I'm I'm sorry. I just want to say that. I mean, uh, I never thought about it that way, Sebastian. I've I've read about your town halls, but I never saw it that way. It, it's how do you make them a part of it and and not relying on just those folks that have uh, shared common uh, hardship with you. Uh, because I think that there's still to this day some kind of, uh, you know, bravado that still surrounds us. Like I, I have a very difficult time reaching out for help. You, you know that and, and Brian knows that. Um, but I'm becoming more vulnerable as, uh, as I mature and I look back at this. But I never thought about it that way with, you know, the rest of the American citizens out there. In fact, I, I, I shy away from it, not because I don't think that they won't understand, but because... I don't, I don't know why, but I think that there's others out there that are probably like me, and I, I would encourage them to do it because I'm going to try it myself. You know, something else to, to hit on with, you know, reaching out to those, reaching out to your buddies and, and just starting to insulate is also keeping yourself aware of how you're doing it. You know, I'm all for getting with my buddies and throwing, one, throwing them down and hanging out at the bonfire, hanging out at the bar. Uh, getting with my buds and, 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 uh, unfortunately we definitely need to keep in mind the personal responsibility not to get too far down that rabbit hole, because even though communication is good, you know, you start adding in alcohol, you start adding in some of those substances that maybe this tribe overindulges in at times that can lead down a road that if, you know, for instance, you and I, sir, are talking and I'm good, but you're not. And we're throwing them back. That can take you down a rabbit hole that I'm not aware of. And then when we separate, I've just left you in a deep, dark hole. So it's almost one on both of our responsibilities to make sure that when we are 
opening up this Pandora's box. We're doing it in a manner that we can control. And then two, we're also aware of each other's and the people around us on how they're reacting to it because I've seen it. I've personally witnessed it. It's frankly what helped me to kind of get past where I was because one of my friends took his life after hanging out with a former bro because he was drinking. They brought up the past. When he left, my buddy went home and killed himself over that. And it's it's important to bring up because you've got to take personal responsibility for actions. That's part of moving forward is recognizing, like you're saying, sir, right now, you know, recognizing where you where you've been, where you are and where you're going to go. Yeah. Now, I mean, I, I'll share a quick story with that and then turn it over to Sebastian is, uh, I mean, one of my peers, another another colonel. He calls me out of the blue. We don't we don't talk that often, but he reaches out to me, and uh, I thought it was very odd. And he starts talking about how he works up at West Point, and he took his section in there, and he goes, "Hey, we're going to take an hour, and for the first fifteen minutes, we're going to talk about what it is that we feel like as a as a group and as individuals about the retrograde from Afghanistan on a geopolitical scale. Uh, then we're going to go ahead and we're going to talk about it, you know, on a on a tactical operational scale. And then we're going to spend the last 30 minutes. We're going to talk about it as individuals. And the only rule that he said is he goes, Hey, we're not going to bad mouth uh, the commander in chief, uh, which I, I really appreciated him sharing that. And then what we spent is the next hour and 45 minutes, essentially doing the same thing. Um, you know, no alcohol. Uh, he's not one of my closest, you know, friends or confidants, but uh, somebody who reached out, and oddly enough, I think he knew that I'd spent the last 30 days almost nonstop working hard for the retrograde, and, and it just was at the right time, at the right place, and in a space where we could go ahead and do that and not put ourselves at jeopardy because we weren't, you know, inebriated or, or taking any other inhibitors. And then the second thing is, is, you know, just knowing that, Hey, it could be anybody. It doesn't have to be one of your best friends and it doesn't have to be somebody that you deployed with, but another person uh, reaching out and, and being a little bit vulnerable and willing to have those kinds of conversations, no matter how uncomfortable they might be. Because in the end, it, I, I know it worked for him um, and it really helped me out as well. Yeah. So obviously alcohol is a tricky, tricky way to self-medicate for anybody, combat vet or otherwise. And, uh, you know, I had a tough time in my life. Um after after the Corrigal, actually, and uh, I, I was married. That marriage ended, and uh, you know we're still friends. But it was a sa- very sad time, and um, I definitely self medicated. But I also, and Dan, your you know the comment of uh, description of you as the ultimate stoic. I know, man, I know what you're talking about, right? Like stoics, people become stoics because they have to do hard things, right? And if you can disassociate yourself from the experience of something hard or painful, you can do it better. You can do it more easily. It's the most natural defense in the world. But once you have that stoicism in place, it can be very hard to dismantle. And there's going to come at a point in your life where it actually, instead of keeping you safe, it actually puts you in danger, right? Uh, that stoicism. And I remember my, my, I'm remarried and my wonderful wife, Barbara, I remember she caught me on, you know, I just was not, something was wrong, right? And And she was like, uh, honey, are, are you okay? And I was like, I don't know. I just feel funny. I've been felt funny all day. And she said, maybe you're sad. I, I was like, 
oh my God, you're right, I'm sad. That's exactly what, I had no idea, right? She's like, you're, you're right, I'm sad. And, and, I, and I wasn't trying to be funny. I said, honey, it would be really helpful if you could tell me how I'm feeling once in a while. And she was, she was like, are you kidding? You, you want me to tell you how you're feeling? Like you have a problem. Like this is, if you don't know how you're feeling, you gotta figure that out, right? And uh, so, you know, that was a real lesson for me. Like, oh man, you gotta plug back in because that thing that kept you safe for so long is now making you incapable of leading a full, the full life that you deserve, emotionally full life that you deserve, right? And uh, you're gonna have to take in some of the pain in order to get all the satisfaction and meaning and pleasure. You can't just selectively shut stuff out. You're either numb or you're not numb, right? And, you know, I think one of the problems with combat trauma and reintegration is that it's so complicated and painful to reintegrate uh, that people just decide, okay, I'm going to be numb. But then they're numb to everything. They're numb to the birth of their kid. They're numb to, you know, when their daughter graduates, you know, whatever. And you got to break that down. And, and you know, ironically, I mean, I've said this before, like the nation is their heart is in the right place. When you decide that someone's got, a, a, you know, 80% PTSD, disability, etc. And, you know, now we're going to give you some money so that you can help, you know, help keep keep yourself alive, keep, you know, keep functioning. The downside, you know, everything has an upside and a downside. You know that, right? In combat and in life, there everything's got an upside and the downside. The upside of, of that disability payment is it keeps people functioning, right? The downside is that if you want to create a depressed alcoholic, like give him enough money to live in his parents' basement and drink beer and watch TV, you know, I mean, that will do it, right? And, and the disability payments, one of the negative things they allow is for people not to fully engage with society because you can just squeak by on, you know, 3,500 bucks a month tax-free or whatever it is. It's something like that. So, um, I, you know, I think the... The AA piece of this is pretty, pretty important. And one of the things about AA and uh, Dan, we both know a guy who's been, <laughs> been through the ringer with AA uh, and it's turned out well thus far. But you know, one of the things about AA is it is giving you a, a tribe of brothers who have been through the same battles. Right. You want to you want a group of people that have dodged the same bullets and been through the same stuff. That's AA. And one of the reasons it works, it, you cannot get someone to stop drinking in like one-on-one -on -one talk therapy, it does not work, right? AA does it precisely because it's a group and a, a group of people who very quickly find themselves loyal to one another. You know, Sebastian, you mentioned it earlier and just to share a personal experience, I, uh, you talked about helping, you know, helping not only your military, but just helping, you know, the, the overall population. You know, for me personally, this last eight months working in this job, and having the opportunity to get out amongst my peers that I know, but even across the regiment and uh, in the podcast we've done previous to this has been a huge uh, enabler for me. You know, my buddy, he ended his life. That was the slap in the face to get me to stop stuttering, if you will. And it just kind of fell into place. But this transition period by helping others and by, by feeling that fulfillment of doing so, has essentially given me the gas, if you will, you know, to, to move faster, move forward. And, um, you know, it really does come down to the personal responsibility. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say, don't drink, don't, you know, don't, don't drink, don't have fun. Don't go with your buddies. But what you've got to do is, is you've got to take the same diligence that you've done in combat as a leader. 
and as a team member and now apply that to the transition piece because that's the mission you know we're no longer going and doing you know uh, combat things you know the moon's out and the goons are out no now we are transitioning and we are that's our mission and that's where we've got to step back and 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 look at that at each interaction we are doing with our people and use that due diligence to understand that OE, understand uh, those operational uh, parameters to to execute that target flawlessly with transition to the next thing, whatever it is. Because, you know, as my grandma would say, the, uh, the uh, same cloud don't have her over the same dog's ass for long. Does that make sense? There's going to be bright and sunshiny days again. Yeah, the, you know, the, I mean, soldiers are great at tasks, right? And if you can give them the task and get them to take it seriously of becoming an American citizen, I mean, participating in American society again, uh, it's going to require them losing their, in some ways, losing their, their military identity as a primary identity. You're asking them to give up the things that made them feel the most needed, the most powerful, uh, the most important, uh, the most selfless. You're asking them to give that up as a primary identity. But if they don't, they will never live, they will never be at ease back home, right? And then their life is in jeopardy in other ways, through through alcohol and drugs and depression and everything else. So that you have to give it up, right? Like, you can't, you, you, I mean, I said this to the Navy SEALs of all people. I was like, you guys, you want to come back? You want to reintegrate into society? I mean, they invited me down to sort of tell them what I thought, right? And I was like, you guys want to reintegrate? You got to think, you got to stop thinking you're special, like you are special. Everyone knows that. So move on and stop thinking about it uh, because that thought will keep you from feeling like an ordinary person. What you want right now is ordinariness, not specialness. You want ordinariness. You just want to be another person enjoying the fruits of your years of service. You deserve it. You need to come home and be one of us. You can't stay one of you because that will kill you. Kept you alive in combat. It's going to kill you here. And honestly, it upset a few of those guys. You know, though, you know, some of those guys were sort of, I think, very invested in being Navy SEALs for the rest of their lives. God bless them. I get it, right? I mean, I, I you know, I, I understand that, right? It's an enormous badge of honor, but like a lot of badges of honor, it you can get you killed. You know, it, it might cost you your life. And uh, so I, you know, just to hit the Veterans Town Hall one more time, um, we're, um, you know, we're we're taking it to a national level. We filed as a CO one. Uh, what is it, 501c3, um, you know, basically it costs nothing, right? And we're, we're going to have sort of state leaders, uh, state organizers and, and regional organizers. You basically go to the town, you put up some flyers and posters and you post it online and you go to the town hall and ask for the key on Veterans Day and you set up the PA system and you're done, you're good. All the directions are on my website. And, you know, we don't do this, right? People have to step in and do it in their communities. We don't have a you know, we don't have a staff, right? I got one person working with me. It's completely dependent on people saying, I want that to happen in my community. You don't have to be a vet or a soldier. You can be a civilian. It doesn't matter. But only vets get to speak. And I'm telling you, the the psychological, the emotional catharsis, the consequences, the effects of this are absolutely ex extraordinary. And you can go onto my website and chase it down on the Veterans Town Hall page if you don't believe me right now, you can read the testimonies. It's a, a beautiful thing. And honestly, I think it's an it could be an important. I want this to happen in every country, every town in the country. You know what I mean? Like, 
or, or at least 100 towns in each state. You know, I feel like it's a, it could be a really important piece of the puzzle for this country. You know, Sebastian, I, I can't help but draw the, the parallels, I think, that you're talking about with this uh, Veterans Town Hall to what you experienced uh, with a couple of our friends walking along the, the railroad tracks. Um, it, it wasn't exactly the same, but you got to interact with America in all walks and shapes and listen to how they, how they perceive things and, and what they thought, you know, freedom was like, um, in their minds. And I think to your point, it's, it's an outreach. It's, it's them, you know, veterans going and talking to their communities, um, and, and finding their tribe within the United States of America. And it might not be the same tribe that you came from originally. Must be finding your next purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, there's nothing like four men and a dog and four heavy packs to to make people feel feel closer and better. You know, it's sort of weird. I mean, you know, like exertion and, and, you know, physical exertion is honestly like a pretty important therapeutic process. And particularly when you do it with some other people that you're dependent on and you know, we weren't dodging gunfire. I mean, one time we did, but mostly it was just getting the fire lit in the evening and getting water and keeping keep it out of the side of, side of the police who were constantly trying to bust us. But it was an amazingly therapeutic, powerful experience. And we got to meet our country. And you're, we're walking through, you know, straight up redneck Pennsylvania. We're walking through like ghetto ghettos in Baltimore and Philly and rich suburbs and every damn thing like we are walking through america for better or worse like every kind of neighborhood and you know because i had a couple of veterans with me uh uh dave rolls and brendan um you know basically everywhere we went any kind of community white black rich poor didn't matter because we had veterans we were welcome and uh it was an amazing experience to see how America really thinks about soldiers. Forget about the politics, the blue and the red and all that nonsense. Like when it comes down to it, you could be in the, the poorest urban neighborhood in America and you fi- they find out you're a vet and they're freaking saluting you. Right. And or the wealthiest town, it doesn't matter. And the power of veterans to unify. I mean, Look, the country's in a crisis, and that crisis is going to have psychological consequences for vulnerable people like veterans, like, you know, traumatized combat vets. And we ask you guys to fix one country, Afghanistan, right? It's not fair to ask you to fix another one, which is America, but you may have to do it. And one way to do it is to present the core ethos of the military to the nation, which is we are together in this. I don't care what, what you look like or what you believe, we are together in this. And that might be the last, the ultimate and the most crucial thing that America, that soldiers can give America is that is that message. We really need it right now. And if we can turn the corner on that stuff as a nation, I promise you, it'll flow back to you guys in in, in terms of a healthier society for you guys to reintegrate into. Like it's a feedback loop and it'll work, but we may need you guys to make it work. Well, I think that honestly, sir, I mean, if you look at it like what you're saying, which I'm understanding exactly the point. This is the, probably one of the federal institutions that still has the trust of the American people on both sides of the aisle, the United States military. And yeah, I think the important thing for those listening, you know, we talked about this the other week is the productive versus unproductive way of dealing with this. And so for us, DOD, you know, we owe it to the last 20 years because 
for that question of was Afghanistan worth it? Well, I can tell you, I can't answer that other than if we lose the faith in the American people now, then I think we may have just passed, a, uh, wasted a, a, a large amount of our time. If we lose the faith in American people now, and we can do that by productively working through these issues that may be being had. Is that kind of what you're saying, sir? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the one thing that I will I will throw out there, uh, kind of circling back to the beginning here with the retrograde out of Afghanistan, is uh, I, I had the unique opportunity, and you and I talked about it a couple years ago, of being able to assist in the shutting down of uh, of the Korngal outpost. And then I had the, the unique opportunity to be part of the headquarters that was integral into the the retrograde of uh, of Afghanistan, particularly from uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport over last month. And, you know, I don't know that I've completely been able to go ahead and talk about it and really reflect on it. But what I can say is that, you know, being able to, to be a part of both of those things kind of gave me a sense of closure, uh, you know, at least in, in the mission, um, number one. Number two, it, it's incredibly awesome to have been a part of those two uh, events because, one, we retrograded out of uh, Korngal without a single shot being fired, which I can say without a doubt that I never thought was humanly possible. Number two, uh, coming out of uh, H. Kaya and, and coming back, uh, while we ended up losing, you know, 13 heroes, uh, in the process, we saved tens of thousands of lives. And, and what transpired during that that three weeks four weeks there was nothing short of, of a herculean effort and it really uh in my mind cemented you know the demonstration of american resolve um it, it might be looked at in, in other ways out there but but for all my fellow veterans uh i can tell you that from one veteran to another i'm incredibly proud of what it is that our military did what our soldiers did on the ground down there marines and sailors uh, and, and airmen for that matter, because it, it was nothing short of a miracle uh, to be able to go ahead and, and be able to do what it is that was done in such a short period of time under those types of uh, circumstances. And, and, and last but not least is it's, you know, to, to Sebastian's point there, I mean, there are friends of mine and, and probably some of ours that were out there talking with the same very folks that we were, we were trained to go ahead and kill. Uh, and we were relying on them uh, to to help and protect us. I, I never thought in a million years I would see that. Um, and, and what I can tell you is, is that, you know, from what it is that I saw and from the vantage point that I had is it, it definitely causes a lot of people to go ahead and think and, and question it. Uh, but at the same token, I, I think I can sleep better at night knowing like that we gave everything we had to be able to go ahead and, and pull out of there. Uh, and pull everybody that we could in, in that short period of time. Um, and, and I share that because I, I know that there's probably a number of people that are listening to this that are going to question it even after that. Uh, but I, I think that that needed to be stated. So I, just throwing that out there for the team. No, I thank you, Dan. I mean, I think it's really important to keep focused on that. I mean, I remember people thinking that the uh, the U.S. mission to Somalia was a failure. And it was point because the because of the Battle of Mogadishu and the casualties, and then it was pointed out that they the mission saved like 50,000 lives or something over the course of its 
months or year of duration. And so, you know, the, the public watches Fox or CNN and sees, you know, the, the, the dramatic stuff, right? But they're not, as you say, Dan, like you saved tens of thousands of lives in an extraordinary operation. And, uh, and the, you know, the bigger picture, and I've said this publicly, what did we accomplish there? Was it worth it? I mean, I'm not going to say whether it's worth it. I'm a journalist, so I just, I don't evaluate things. I just ask the questions or whatever. But uh, we, we, we killed bin Laden and destroyed Al-Qaeda. We, we educated part of a generation of Afghans. And we modernized Afghanistan to the point where, even though the Taliban have taken over um, militarily, I'm not sure that they can actually undo what what the world and the U.S. and the Afghans have established in Afghan society. They've doubled the population. There's universities, there's high rises, there's cell phones. A generation of girls have been educated. I don't think they're going to reverse that. And um, so that's what we've done. Um, that's not a failure. Right. It, I think the optics of the Taliban taking in were sort of hard on everybody. But actually, if you sort of take a deep breath and think about the changes in that country and how we eliminated a terrible threat that hurt us very badly 20 years ago. You know, I think you can I think you can say that that we um, there's a lot of there's a lot in the plus column. I, I walk away thinking that we left it better than we found it. Um, and, and that's generally always been the, the, the goal for every every soldier is you, you always leave whatever it is your foxhole is in better shape than uh, than you found it. You don't do what some might have done in uh, Band of Brothers and, and leave them a, a smoking turd behind it. I, I don't think that we did that. I don't feel like that. Um, and, and I think that that's what helps me, you know, deal and justify, you know, what it is that I, I did spend in like six plus years over there slogging it out. So now I, I appreciate you bringing that up, Sebastian. Sebastian, any final thoughts before we let you get back to your busy life? Yeah. Um, well, again, it's, it's really as a civilian... It's an honor, really an honor, to be um, asked to participate in this conversation. And this nation is going through some growing pains. We're a young nation, and we're going through a, uh, I don't want to say a bad, but definitely a complicated place right now. And, um, you know, the military is at the core of our national values. And, you know, you guys are a crucial piece of every, anything that America becomes. And, uh, and you know, if I can, you know, that, I, that some of my work has helped veterans reintegrate back into this amazing country uh, and with all the good that they can do once they come back. You know, that to me as an American citizen is really thrilling. So I just want to th- I want to thank you guys for inviting me in uh, to this process. Hey, well, Sebastian, I just want to let you know, uh, I did. I read your books and uh, or listened to your books. But regardless, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed them, uh, at least the two, I, you know, the two I read, which was uh, Tribe and Freedom. And it's given me it's given me dialogue as I've tried to articulate this to my demographic of buddies out there that are going through this at that E7, E8 level. It's given me a dialogue. It's given me just a perspective to to give them based off of what I got from listening to your books. I enjoyed it. So thank you. Thank you very much. And they're not so long or big that you can't stick them in your hip pocket and be able to pull them out either for uh, for all those that are listening to this. Um, it, it's not uh, it's not uh, 
tremendously long and, and, and he shies away from the big words. There's no pictures for folks like me that need those to, to be able to correlate to the words. But I think most of us uh, could probably walk away from uh, from both of those books and, and war for that matter uh, with some, you know, LPDs, leader professional developments to be able to give to their soldiers, uh, sailors and airmen, um, and, and also to better understand and, and, and deal with what it is that you might be doing without their um, I, I know I'm going to go back and, and reread uh, Tribe again uh, following this conversation uh, because it's it's just one of those that it kind of helps you recenter yourself in, in, in the tribes that, that you're a part of, and, and we're part of multiple. So uh, with that being said, uh, again, hey, Sebastian, always great to see you. I owe you a phone call, um, and, and I hope to see you at the Cape maybe the next time. Gentlemen, Sebastian, thank you so much for engaging in this conversation. So the uh, the book War, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Shrink that said start smoking. I never told him to start smoking. It was yeah, yeah, don't yeah. quit. <laughs> <laughs> you have a great one, Sebastian. <laughs> nice talking to you guys. Take care. Bye bye. This has been the Indigenous Approach. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. Follow us on social media, and if you have suggestions for topics or guests, send us a message. Thank you for listening. <laughs>